We believe that our 60-40 portfolio is expected to generate about 7% return, median expected returns over the next 10 years. Which means that if you invest into any of the asset classes, like into equities or our 60-40 balance portfolio, would still be winning compared to other asset classes because of the ballast that it builds in. Hello, and welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays, our weekly podcast highlighting our latest stories and market analysis from the ETF perspective. I'm Daria Solovieva, Managing Editor of ETF.com, and I'm joined by my colleague, Senior ETF Analyst, Samit Roy. Hi, Samit. Hey, Daria. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And we're joined today with by Bilal Hassanji, Senior Investment Strategist and Vanguard Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Bilal. Hi, Daria and Samit. Thank you very much for having me today. And we're now at the end of the year where a lot of industry analysts and investors are taking stock of the past year and making predictions about 2023. And we'll do some of that. But today I was excited to speak to you, Bilal, because Canada is so interesting and is an ETF pioneer in many ways. Um, So the fun fact is the first ETF was created in Canada in 1990. And today I was hoping to speak about some of the lessons we can draw from Canada and perhaps you could, your take on the crypto outlook for the coming year. Yeah, sure. So uh, Daria, I would uh, say from a Vanguard's perspective, we look at uh, crypto uh, from the lens of, uh, of a long-term investor. Vanguard's investment philosophy has always been long-term and we advise our clients to uh, focus on the long term, have diverse uh, portfolios, have a long term, have long term objectives and goals, and portfolio allocation should reflect that. Uh, crypto. When when we looked at uh, crypto assets, our main concern for crypto assets is that uh, these are first of all unregulated uh, markets or or assets, uh, and then second concern that we have is uh, they do not have um, like an income generation or a cash flow generation. So unlike stocks or bonds, which are basically paying uh, coupons uh, in case of bonds uh, or dividends in case of stocks, uh, and there are like underlying assets under both. Uh, in case of bonds, they're like basically it's backed up by the um, uh, by the collateral in case of stocks, it's basically the underlying residual assets of the company whose stocks uh, uh, our clients are investing in. So in case of crypto, we don't have that. And uh, it's not just like allocating a part of the portfolio uh, without having the cash flows coming in. It's also whatever you are moving into crypto is actually an opportunity cost in terms of not having that capital allocated between stocks and bonds. So Vanguard has always been a strong advocate of having a balanced portfolio between stocks and bonds, because uh, we believe that having a balanced portfolio between stocks and bonds provides the kind of uh, balance that is required in the portfolio. So equity markets, when they do well, they essentially provide the upside in terms of higher returns, apart from the dividend component, and that provides the growth to the portfolio. But when things are not looking rosy, bonds are there to provide a hedge or, or as a risk protection to the portfolio. In case of crypto, you're basically removing that hedge and putting your part of your money, even though if it's small, 
into an asset class that does not pay any coupons, it does not pay any dividends, and it is considered as, as high risk, which we have seen in terms of volatility over the past uh, year or so now. Uh, so these are the some of the concerns that we have as a firm about crypto as an asset class. So in terms of the all the headlines that we've seen about crypto winter and the turbulence, do you think that the markets will shake this off? What is your outlook for next year in terms of your clients and outlook for next year? So right now, uh, Daria, we are seeing very high yields uh, that uh, fixed income assets are providing. And our outlook for fixed income assets has improved quite dramatically over the past one year in terms of uh, the expected return or expected median return over the next 10 years. As I said, Vanguard is a very long-term investor for when we are managing funds for our clients and we advise the same to, to our advisor clientele. So looking at it from uh, an overall framework of investing today, interest rates are at very high levels, which means there are lots of opportunities for investors uh, investing into bonds and also equities on a, on a long-term basis. So if today, for example, we look at uh, Canadian or international bonds, uh, their expected returns have more than doubled compared to the expected returns last year or at the beginning of this year. So this is a huge move in terms of uh, improvement of expected returns across uh, bonds and equities. So our equities as well, our, ex our median expected returns over the next 10 years for Canadian equities, for international equities, i.e. Global X US and Global X Canada developed markets have actually more than doubled if we compare the returns as of end of Q Q3 compared mm -hmm. to the end of Q4 2020, uh, 2022, uh, 2021. So in nine months or so, almost in a year's time, the returns, expected returns, median expected returns on those asset classes have essentially more than doubled. Now we look at, yeah, now when we look at crypto, we look at it from the lens of like, on one hand, I can essentially invest in a, for example, uh, Vanguard Canada's uh, global credit fund, which yields more than 6% right now, okay, or in a global uh, corporate uh, or in a Canadian bond fund, which yields north of 5.3%. Uh, it's a yield to maturity. If I invest into crypto, I don't know what yield am I going to get on that. So I'm looking at it from the perspective of an investor, like what is my opportunity cost here? Should I invest in a Canadian credit fund? or in a, uh, in a global credit fund, or in a, should I invest in Canadian bonds? I know the certainty of return, okay? It's like next to uh, guaranteed. And on the other hand, there's crypto where I don't know how much am I going to make. Mm -hmm. So th this is my comparison. This is the lens by which we uh, look at from, uh, from an investment strategy pers perspective and compare crypto to, to bonds and stocks. Mm -hmm. That's a valid comparison. And you were answering my question before I got a chance to ask it. <laughs> but I, I have to ask you about the Bank of Canada's decision this week to raise interest rates by half a percentage point. And when we look at the global market, since you're based in Canada, is the rate hiking cycle over for Canada, given the comparison and the outlook that you've just described 
from the Vanguard's perspective? That's a great question, uh, Daria, and I get asked about that a lot. So um, reading from, uh, from the comments from uh, uh, after the announcement of the rate decision, um, what, what our understanding is that Bank of Canada is, is going to look at, there's been a, like a slight hint of that there's going to be a pause, but in our opinion, it is going to be data dependent in the sense that if, for example, the inflation number is not getting lower from this point onward, if we are not seeing the impact of high interest rates on consumption, on, on overall demand in the economy and prices, we'll probably uh, may not see uh, like uh, a stop of uh, rate hikes going forward. Having said that, the impact of rate hikes has already seeped in to uh, the various aspects of the economy. We have seen a reduced real estate uh, activity, um, residential real estate activity in Toronto, GTA, Vancouver, Metropolis. So that is having an impact. We've also seen higher interest rates bringing down the mortgage volumes. So that means it is fueling less of the, the real estate demand that was, uh, that was going through, more like not genuine demand, rather more speculative demand. So before all of this, before Bank of Canada embarked on the journey of hiking interest rates, the last estimate from Bank of Canada study was like about 20% of all real estate activity was essentially based off uh, speculation or investment rather than genuine demand into the Canadian residential real estate. So all of that is uh, is going to have an have an impact. So in our opinion, Bank of Canada is going to look at its further decisions for rate hike or not based on on data. Will be data dependent, as I said looking at the inflation numbers, looking at the PMI, looking at the, the consumption levels and how it's impacting overall prices. And are there any takeaways for the global markets, you know, in terms of how central banks are around the world are continuing to think about inflation and economic anxiety, which is not limited to Canada? Absolutely. So I'll compare it to, to Federal Reserve, for example, uh, because a uh, U.S. is our biggest trading partner in, in Canada, and uh, its economic uh, repercussions have uh, consequences for Canadians and Canadian economy as well. So in terms of U.S., uh, we believe that Federal Reserve, again, has been very, very clear uh, since its last rate hike uh, in November, saying that they will essentially not leave interest rates um, uh, they will not bring interest rates down or they will not uh, pivot on hike in interest rates unless they see visible evidence of a reduction in inflation. That said, there are essentially uh, challenges that are faced by, by Federal Reserve in terms of, of if it causes a recession, a deep recession, uh, instead of a, uh, a, a just a, a, a gradual slowdown or a cursory recession, instead of that, it causes a deep recession and a long recession, they would obviously try to avoid that. So, so far, 
Federal Reserve have, have has the flexibility of hiking rates because the labor markets have been strong. But, and that is a function of because the employers or the companies have not started to, to have not started layoffs or wide scale layoffs. Having said that, we recently saw uh, Goldman Sachs CEO speaking about a slowdown in the business. And then we saw other banks actually talking about layoffs. We are seeing some tech companies laying off uh, uh, of their, their crew or their, their staff. So if that trend continues and that brings a lot of job losses, which will impact the, the consumption levels, which may increase loan defaults, con both consumer defaults, consumer loan defaults and mortgage defaults, as we saw in 2008, 2009 global financial crisis, that is going to have a bearing on Federal Reserve decision to keep hiking interest rates going forward. Bilal, I kind of want to zoom out and talk about the bigger picture. Here in the U.S., you know, for 40 years or so, we've seen declining inflation, declining interest rates, and we've seen the same in other developed countries as well. But has something fundamentally changed this year where we're going into this new paradigm of higher interest rates and higher inflation? Great question, uh, Sumit. So, I would say that we have seen periods of higher inflation uh, before with higher interest rates from central banks and policymakers coming in uh, right after that. That said, certain asset classes have done well during those periods. So we looked at six, uh, six different periods of high interest rates from 1976 to 2019 and found that certain asset classes have performed really well. So high interest rates does not necessarily mean that it's all bad news for, for investors. Initially, yes, as we can see, it brings down the prices of equities and it brings down the prices of bonds, uh, but at the same time, it creates certain opportunities. In terms of bonds, it creates opportunities of earning a higher coupon. It also, from our research starting from 19, uh, actually from uh, nine, June 1970, uh, from February 1975 to June 76 period, all the way up to April 2019, we looked at six different periods of high interest rates, and we found that high quality value, international stocks in general, U.S. equities, they have performed well in those periods, in all those periods. Whereas certain asset classes have not done so well during those periods, for example, US ag bonds or low quality growth or commodities or housing prices, they don't do well because they are a lot more interest sensitive than the other asset classes I just mentioned. So there are always pockets of opportunities. Going back to bonds, we believe that as long as bond investors are managing their portfolios in, uh, appropriately in the sense of managing the duration of their portfolio, as, as long as the duration of their portfolio is shorter than their investment horizon, they will be well set for making higher coupon income, which will more than offset the price reduction that they will have on their bonds. That's number one. And number two, apart from that, they'll also have 
if they have like liquidity available, they'll be able to participate in higher interest rates when interest rates start to go down, down the road as Fed and other global central banks, once they have reached their goals of, uh, of bringing inflation down and interest rates start to come down, their bond portfolios will start making Canadian, uh, they'll, they'll making, start making capital gains uh, because they will have booked their bond positions at higher coupons compared to the prevailing market at that point in a falling interest rate scenario. Does that answer your question, uh, Sumit? It does, it does. And I just had a quick follow-up. So you obviously mentioned that high inflation, high interest rates isn't necessarily a bad thing for every part of the market and there's pockets of opportunity. But how does an investor decide whether we are truly in this new higher interest rate, higher inflation environment? Is that an active call that each investor has to make? Well, th that's another great question, uh, Sumit. So we are at, if we look at like uh, over the 10 years of data or 20 years of data, we are still like, uh, we, we, are, we have already reached the, uh, the above average rates of interest, especially over the last 10, 15 years time. So we are on, on the higher side of interest rates. So unlike 1980s or early 90s, when interest rates will have reached like in their like 20 percentage points and, 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 and those uh, levels, apart from those like more recently over the past 10 years, 15 years, or even 20 years, we do not, uh, we have not seen these levels of interest uh, more recently. So clearly, there are opportunities and those investors, especially more sophisticated investors and institutional investors, they are locking in these yields for, um, for sovereign, for high quality corporate bonds in order to benefit from, from the time when the lower interest rates will prevail and their bond portfolios will shoot up in value because of capital gains. That's great perspective and context going back to 1975, but I wanted to ask you more about these pockets of opportunities in terms of planning for next year. And let's talk about portfolio strategy, given the amount of market volatility that we're seeing around the world and where you seeing the most interesting opportunities across asset classes, not just bonds. That's a, that's a great question, Darius. I'll start with, with bonds. So, we use a fair value matrix uh, when it comes to asset allocation at Vanguard. So we divide our asset allocation opportunities into three buckets uh, of uh, undervalued. So some asset classes are undervalued, some are fairly valued, and some are overvalued. So in our opinion, Canadian bonds are within the fair value uh, spectrum when it comes to uh, looking at like 10 year from now or 10 year forward expectations of return. So those investors who are looking to invest long-term and they have the patience and discipline to stick to their decisions and take advantage of the opportunities that prevail today. So in our opinion, as I said, investing is a long-term game. You cannot have, like, this is what I was talking about when I said crypto versus stocks versus bonds. Crypto has been in vogue, in our opinion, because there was quick money to be made, okay? But in case of stocks and bonds, sometimes, yes, you do get opportunities to make 
money or make your returns on investments quickly. But generally, the, the game is for long-term investors. So Vanguard believes in that philosophy. So looking at 10 years from now, we say that Canadian bonds uh, are generally within the fair market value, uh, within the fair, uh, fair market value domain, especially the Canadian credit. Actually, in our opinion, Canadian credit is within the, uh, uh, the value territory, just uh, like uh, at the cusp of being undervalued. It may or may not go further down so that it creates more value. But as an investor, I would definitely be looking at Canadian credit. As I said, Canadian credit fund, our credit, uh, Canadian credit fund is generating close to about 5.3% yield. And those are like all investment grade Canadian corporates. On the other hand, we also have global credit fund, which is generating about like more than 6% yield. So like, again, in terms of asset allocation, uh, decisions, we do see value across the spectrum in fixed income. So in other words, or to put in a nutshell, in our opinion, bonds are back and there are lots of opportunities for investors. Now moving over to equities, we believe that um, overall equity uh, returns have also improved quite significantly. So we believe Canadian equities are essentially within the fair value band. US equities, on the other hand, they are on the higher side of the value spectrum, i.e. they are still higher, higher value than, the, than their, their intrinsic fair value, uh, fair, uh, intrinsic fair value. So in our opinion, Canadian equities are actually on the lower side of the fair value. International equities, are like when I say international, international from a Canadian investor's perspective, so X Canada, X US, so global X North America, they are also within the fair value band. So there is uh, a higher expected return uh, over the next 10 years for international equities. Within US equities, we see US value to be generating a higher expected return compared to US growth, actually quite uh, quite better than uh, than U.S. growth. As I said earlier, we see uh, we prefer U.S. Uh, international equities over U.S. as well. So global X U.S. global developed X U.S., which includes Canada, Europe, and other developed markets, they are expected to generate higher returns than uh, than the U.S. market overall. And what is driving that in terms of the U.S. performance? the valuation. So U.S. assets have been very highly valued over the past well, compared to the international. That's number one. Number two, a bigger allocation. If you look at like U.S. equities, a big portion of that has been traditionally the, the way the market cap rates have been, been to the technology sector. And the growth sector or technology sector has, has been essentially, uh, that we have seen significant drawdowns and some companies up to 60, 70% uh, drawdowns. So all of that is having an impact. Uh, that said, the developed uh, markets X US have gone through correction and they have gone through also some economic uh, uh, turmoil or geopolitical situation. For example, Europe 
or European equities have been affected by Russia-Ukraine geopolitical conflict. Before that, uh, the continuation of the credit problems in the Europe, and then the pandemic-related problems. So the equities have been bettered quite a lot in, for example, European markets compared to the US. And secondly, the US market serves as a, as a flight to heaven or as a safe heaven for investors when there, whenever there is a panic or when there, there is a geopolitical risk that uh, increases. So uh, the pandemic related scare and then the Russia, uh, Ukraine related conflict related uncertainty, all of them drove significant volumes or capital flows into the US markets, which essentially meant that the US assets were uh, highly priced or their valuations essentially increased quite a lot over the past decade or so. So all of that is now impacting and then we see that the US equities are probably going to underperform uh, compared to their counterparts in developed ex-US markets. So the, that is our expectation over, over the long term over the next 10 years. Bilal, appreciate your comments on bonds and stocks. I kind of want to ask you now about the combination of the two and specifically the venerable 60-40 portfolio. This is a portfolio that's had its worst performance in a long time and one of its worst performances in history, essentially. So do you think the 60-40 portfolio is still relevant? Absolutely. We believe, uh, Summit, that 60-40 portfolio is more relevant today than ever in the recent history. First of all, let's look at the problem. A 60-40 portfolio's utility was challenged recently. The reason was that both stocks and bonds were going down in tandem, or they had positive correlation, especially over the past uh, year or so since January when we started seeing interest rates to go higher. So with that, we saw that both equities and bond prices started to come down together. And the traditional having a negative correlation between the two asset classes, that relationship seemed to have broken down. And that is why investors and some commentators started commenting on the 6040 is dead or it's no more relevant. Our view is that it is even more relevant than before. Now, first look at the correlation uh, related myth. So first argument that we give is like, the correlation between stocks and bonds have generally stayed negative for a long, long period of time. It only comes or it only goes higher than zero or becomes positive when there is a higher and more persistent inflation for a long period of time. So, more recently, we saw a very high inflation because of loose monetary policy to fight COVID-related slowdowns. And that inflation and its expectation to stay longer, uh, stay higher for longer, essentially meant that investors were seeing that, hey, it's not a good time to buy bonds because interest rates are going higher. So they started uh, to sell their bonds, they started to sell equities because of a higher discount rate, because of high interest rates. And that's why we saw that. But over the long term, as soon as we see that the expectation of inflation goes down, and we have seen that in the history, I'm looking at uh, like data from 1980, 1992, 
to uh, end of 2021, like it was only from let's say a period of 1992 to 1999 that we saw that there was some periods of higher positive correlation between stocks and bonds. Generally, the short-term correlations are time varying. Uh, and from 1989 up until end of 2021, they were negative, apart from like very short periods during 2006, 2007, 2008 period when we saw those correlations. Secondly, we see that the, the percentage of periods where stocks and bonds have correlations have been positive for long have been very small. So for example, uh, the periods where the positive correlation existed for one month or longer was only was less than 15% of the times over a period from 1976 to 2022, like January, February 2022. So which means that over a period of almost 50 years, been only 15% of the times where we saw the positive correlation does have stayed for over three months, uh, sorry, over one month. If we go to three months period, like if the correlation has stayed positive, the percentage comes down to 8.5%. If we go to six months, like if the correlation persisted for over six months, the percentage goes down to 3.6%, one year it's 0.4%, and three years it's zero. There's not been a single period where the inflation has stayed, oh sorry, the correlation between stocks and bonds have stayed positive for three years or more. So this is the, the logic one. And then secondly, one more uh, piece of research that I would like to share with you is like, if you look at the 60 day rolling correlation between stocks and bonds, yes, it has stayed positive on some occasions. I'm again looking at the 1992 uh, from the period from 1992 to beginning of 2022. Having said that, if we look at the 24 months correlation or like two year rolling correlation between stocks and bonds, which means looking at long-term correlation, it has stayed negative all the way from 1999 to, to uh, up until recently, except for, so even like with the recent surge in correlation, when people say there's been a high correlation, that's correlation is, is only if you look at 60 days or two months correlation. If you look at long-term correlation, it is still positive as we speak now. I think the answer is yes. The 60-40 portfolio is still relevant. <laughs> it is relevant. And let me let me just share a few more, more things on because that's an important um, uh, topic. So we believe that our 60-40 portfolio is expected to generate about 7% return, median expected returns over the next 10 years. Which means that if you invest into any of the asset classes, like into equities or our 60-40 balance portfolio would still be winning compared to other asset classes because of the ballast that it builds in, i.e. the hedge against market downturns in equities when uh, there is a turmoil in the market or there is a recession or there's any trouble in the market, that's bonds comes in. So the role of 60-40 is still intact. Actually, it's more relevant today than ever before because bonds have become so attractive 
So having a significant portion, let's say about 40% into bonds in a 60-40 portfolio would essentially provide the kind of protection you need to, uh, to hedge against volatility, to hedge against market drawdowns, and still having jointly high yields of like 6% if you invest into our global credit fund or 5%, more than 5% if you invest into uh, Vanguard's Canada uh, Canadian uh, credit fund, a Canadian bond fund. So there's one more thing I would like to, to share with you that uh, if, for example, you are looking at a bond portfolio alone, the expectation of returns is composed of two components. One is the price return, and the other one is the interest coupons. As I explained earlier, so I'll spend like less than 30 seconds on that. So although investors are essentially facing drawdown in their bond portfolio, higher interest rates, but that's not end of the story. Because if, for example, they have money parked on the sidelines and they are investing into, into bonds now, they, are, they will be better off a few years down the road because the overall bond return is composed of two things, the price return and the coupon return. So locking in high coupon rates at, at, at today's yields that are prevailing in the fixed income markets or bond markets is going to provide that cushion that they are going to need a few years down the road when interest rates normalize going forward. That's great. Thank you for providing that context without, um, in terms of understanding it. It does sound uh, from Vanguard's perspective that 60-40 portfolio is more relevant than ever. Um, I wanted to ask you about the future a little bit, given the range of products that you described and competitive pricing, among other factors for some of the products. In the US and globally, Vanguard has been projected to take the top spot in terms of inflows for some time. So we have to ask you about predictions. Do you think it will happen next year? In terms of taking the top spot in terms of inflows? Uh, okay, so I'm an investment strategist. Uh, Daria, I uh, do not have like, honestly, a view on how our product flows are going to look like. But mm -hmm. hey, at the end of the day, I'm part of Vanguard and I strongly believe that because of our investment philosophy, because of um, our belief in long-term investing and our attitude of service towards our clients. So Vanguard operates on a very low cost model for, for investors via the cost leaders in the industry. We bring in the so-called Vanguard effect in each and every market that we, that we operate in in Europe or in North America or in emerging markets or in Asia, we basically bring the Vanguard effect, i.e. we have overall brought down the cost of investing, which means that an investor, for an investor, it would take less, more of their money will be working towards their lifetime goals or investment goals rather than towards uh, paying for uh, for the investment companies. So in that sense, I strongly believe that based on our investment philosophy of having low cost, having long-term goals, implementing those long-term goals using um, asset allocation for long-term, having great products and having great advice for our clients, and at the same time, having a long-term discipline i.e. sticking to the goals, sticking to the financial plan. So all of that philosophy embeds into our products 
and our advice that we provide to our clients. And that makes me say with a lot of confidence that yes, we should see a similar trend going forward. But with the caveat that I'm not a product specialist, uh, I'm an investment strategist, but I strongly believe in Vanguard's philosophy and its uh, success so far. And I believe that will continue going forward. I want to end off by asking you another question on fixed income. We know that close to its rate hike, at least a pause in its rate hiking cycle, uh, and yields are looking attractive, yet we don't know exactly if and when interest rates are going to go back down. So in that context, how should investors navigate the fixed income markets? How should they position their portfolio? Should they be sticking with lower duration types of ETFs so they don't have that interest rate risk, or should they kind of extend out into the longer maturities? Yeah, great question, Sumit. Um, so uh, in a nutshell, the answer is in this market environment, our research shows that managing the duration of the portfolio is key for, for in, a, in a rising interest rate scenario. The reason why I'm seeing that is that based on our research, those investors who manage their duration of the portfolio such that, that it, is, it remains, i.e. the duration of the portfolio remains shorter than their total investment horizon, as long as they maintain that, they will be all set to, to gain from higher interest rates going forward. Now, let me explain the logic behind it. So imagine an investor who's got 10 years to retirement or 15 years to retirement. Let's stick to 10 years for the sake of simplicity. And they have a portfolio that has a duration of, um, let's say, three years. So over the next 10 years, the investor will have approximately about 3.33 times they can change. Let's say I go with your assumption that Fed is not going to bring interest rates down over the next 10 years. So in that scenario, as long as the investor is able to reprice their portfolio, i.e. their bond portfolio duration is, let's say, three years, it matures, they reinvest it, but when they reinvest it, they reinvest at a higher rate than their prevailing uh, bond portfolio. So they will increase the yield. Next three years after that, they again reinvested at a higher yield and so on and so forth. So they can do it over three times. But if it's reverse the case, i.e. their own portfolio duration is, let's say, uh, let's say 10 years, their investment horizon is only two years or three years, they'll basically have fixed return, which was most likely booked few years ago when bond returns were low, or let's say a year ago when bond returns were very low, or bond coupons were very low. So at those yields, they will not be able to take benefit of high interest rates, and they will not have the opportunity that the price reduction that they have on the bond will not be able to recover until the, uh, until the maturity. So let's say if today a bondholder is holding a bond uh, let's say she bought it at par, i.e. 100% of the price, and now the, the price of that bond is 95. So if, they, if she would like to sell that bond today, they'll have uh, a 5% loss on that. But if they hold on to it, 
and they keep getting coupons, which will be lower than the market. But at the end of the maturity, they will have, they will still receive par and they'll get 100% of their capital back. So that's another strategy in case if an investor is stuck with a long-term bond portfolio, but at the same time, they don't want to take a capital loss now, rather they would like to wait and get their money towards the end of their, uh, their time horizon, that, that is another strategy. A third strategy could be that for, for an investor who is making a capital gain on another part of their portfolio, let's say on value stocks or uh, on, on energy companies because they have risen quite a bit in the value of the past year or so. So if let's say they want to book in some capital gain, but they want to reduce their tax liability, they can book some losses on their bond portfolio and free up that capital, i.e. they can have some tax loss harvesting and benefit from that and free up their capital at the same time. So there are strategies, as I said, each and every environment brings in some investment opportunities, and there are always strategies to get out of a, uh, a portfolio situation, which is not ideal. Thank you so much for joining us, Bilal. It was a great conversation, and you can find more of our industry coverage on ETF.com, and we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thank you.